Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Psalm 111, verse 4 says, He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. My guests today in studio are Dr. Brad Sickler. He's the department head of the Biblical and Theological Studies and professor of philosophy. Brian DeVries is with us as well. He's the area director for Search Ministries Minnesota. And our very special guest, the always great, never less than sensational, Dr. Stephen Meyer. We got his PhD in philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge and author of the New York Times best-selling uh, book Darwin's Doubt and Return of the God Hypothesis: Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let me start with you, Stephen. What was like? What was life like growing up? Like in high school, did you go to prom or did you stay home and study that night too? Oh, I didn't study, but I didn't get to go to prom because I couldn't find a girl who would go with me. I was too too geeky. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you about your, your fantastic book, Return of the God Hypothesis. Let me start. And just maybe you would be kind enough to just give us your your the overarching premise of this book. Yeah, that's great. The, the book tells a story, and it's the story of the uh, influence of Judeo-Christian ideas, theistic ideas, biblical ideas on the rise of modern science during a period of time called the, the Scientific Revolution from roughly 1500 to 1750. And then how, uh, it also tells how those ideas kind of uh, went into uh, abeyance, or they, there was an eclipse of those ideas during the 19th century with the rise of uh, ideas like Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, Marx's theory of dialectical materialism, and later Freudian ideas uh, about um, uh, the human condition. So uh, by the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, science was seen to support a kind of what, what scholars call a materialistic worldview that denied the role of, a, of an intelligent agent or creator of any kind, and the thus departing from the Judeo-Christian or theistic foundation of modern science. And in the book, I argue that that theistic perspective is now coming back or should be coming back because of three great discoveries that have been made about the origin of the universe, about the fine-tuning of the physical parameters of the universe, and about the complexity of life, especially the informational complexity, the discovery of digital code in the DNA molecule and the role that that information plays in a complex information processing system for building the miniature machines that we're finding in cells. So it's, it's a new day in science. We have the evidence of a creation event at the beginning of the universe, evidence for design of the universe from the very beginning and what physicists call the fine-tuning of the basic parameters of physics, and then in life, this exquisite informational and nanotechnology that's been discovered inside even the simplest living cells, suggesting, as I argue in my books, the uh, 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 the role or importance of a designing intelligence and in explaining the origin of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, it, it, when you talk about intelligent design, that is that is that creationism? 
or is it not creationism? Well, it all depends on how people define terms, but typically creationism is based on the biblical text in Genesis 1, and it uh, the term is often associated with people who read the Genesis text in a particular way to affirm that the earth is very young. Uh, the theory of intelligent design is not based on a biblical or scriptural te- text. Rather, it's, a, it's an inference from biological and cosmological or physical evidence, and therefore it has a, a scientific basis rather than a theological basis. And moreover, most of the proponents of intelligent design know that, uh, though not all, uh, affirm that the the universe and and the earth are very old. Um, it, it, more to the point, it's an age neutral theory. It's really not addressing the question of how old is the earth, how long are the days of Genesis. It's really addressing the question of whether or not we see evidence of actual design in living organisms in the universe, rather than just the appearance or illusion of design, which is what Darwinists have long affirmed. They will want they want to say life looks as though it was designed for a purpose. But that, per, that, that appearance is just an illusion. So we framed our ideas about intelligent design mainly in opposition to that key Darwinian claim that life is the product of undirected, unguided material processes. Um, Richard Dawkins has famously said, said that biology is, it, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of design um, but are but are not in fact designed. So we, we want to say, no, that appearance is not an illusion. It's real. There is evidence of actual design in life and also evidence of design in the universe. Mm-hmm. Dr. Stephen Meyer is our, our guest. His book is Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Man, the Mind Behind the Universe. Now, Stephen, when we do evangelism, we'll we'll have pushback from people that'll say, "Well, I'm you know I'm 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 more of a science guy, uh, so I really can't believe in God. So I, I'm I, you know I'm I believe in science. So does science point to atheism? Uh, well, I definitely don't think so. There's a wonderful quotation from the leading scientific atheist in the world, uh, Richard Dawkins. He says that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we observe. If at bottom there's no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But wow. blind, pitiless indifference for him is a, a, a poetic way of, of describing purely materialistic or purely undirected material processes. So Dawkins thinks that the properties of the universe support what scholars call a, a, a materialistic worldview or a scientific materialistic worldview. And um, I love the, the quote because it frames the issue so beautifully. The question is, it, Dawkins implies that if we look at the properties of the universe, we ought to be able to tell whether the universe is a product of blind, pitiless indifference, i.e. materialistic processes, or whether there might be a creator. He, he sides in the end with the idea that the, the properties of the universe suggest no creator, nothing but blind material processes. But in fact, the great discoveries of the last century – uh, first in cosmology, the discovery that the the universe, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy had a definite beginning as best we can tell. And secondly, the discovery that from the very beginning of the universe, the basic properties of physics, the strength of the the, the physical forces, the mass of the elementary particles, the rate of the expansion of the universe, these various properties fall with each fall within these incredibly improbable sweet spots that make life possible. We call that the fine-tuning of the universe. And thirdly, the evidence of the complexity of, of, of living systems, the information and nanotechnology that we're finding in cells. Each one of these three big discoveries, 
which bear on the question of biological and cosmological origins, are completely unexpected from a materialistic point of view, and they're also unexplained from a materialistic point of view. So though Dawkins frames the ar argument beautifully, <clears throat> um, I think the evidence actually is contrary to his perspective, that um, the, the evidence we have is very unexpected from the standpoint of scientific materialism that holds that the universe is e the physical universe is eternal and self-existent and therefore does not need an external creator and th and it also holds that there's no evidence of the activity of a designing mind in the history of the cosmos or life but when we find digital code and complex information processing systems and tiny little miniature machines and cells these are things that really shocked the scientific materialists when they dis when the cosmologists discovered that the physical universe had a definite beginning a beginning to matter, space, time, and energy, that also shocked them because if matter itself has a beginning some finite time ago, before that, there is no matter to do the causing. And so there's no possibility of a materialistic explanation for the origin of matter itself. So the, the discoveries of the last hundred years have been decidedly contrary to materialistic expectations and therefore don't support a materialistic worldview, but do support a contrary theistic worldview, and that's been the argument of my book. I call that the return of the God hypothesis. Now, so interesting. Dr. Stephen Meyer is my guest. I know that Brad and Brian are chomping to get into this conversation. Brad, I know you got something uh, to ask Stephen. Well, there's a lot that he just touched on, of course. Uh, we could talk for days. Um, one of the things that I would hear, like to hear your perspective on is, you know, you mentioned the fine-tuning and, and the pushback or the response to that that uh, led to kind of the multiverse hypothesis. I was wondering what your thoughts were about oh, that. Oh, I love to talk about the multiverse. It's, it's become a cultural icon. It's in all, yes. all the, the uh, Marvel, Marvel movies, films yeah, and everything else. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, well, the basic idea of the fine-tuning, just to review, is that, is that the, there are multiple parameters of the universe, the strength of gravitation or electromagnetism or the other fundamental forces of physics or the, um, the, 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 the force of the, the, what's called the cosmological constant, the force that physicists have postulated to explain the expansion of the universe, the masses of the elementary particles, the quarks, the electrons, etc. All of these different parameters turn out to fall within very narrow ranges or tolerances outside of which life would be impossible in the universe. In fact, for many of these parameters, even basic chemistry would be impossible unless the the uh, the universe uh, exhibited parameters or uh, values for the parameters that fell within these narrow ranges and so physicists talk about them as as um, the, the the physical features of the universe as falling within these kinds of sweet spots and will often some have even called our universe a goldilocks universe the fundamental forces are not too strong not too weak the rate of expansion of the universe is not too fast not too slow the masses of the elementary particles are not too heavy, not too light. And the odds of getting all these parameters the parameters just right is infinitesimally small because many of these parameters are independent of each other. And the, the, the odds of, of the, the physical <clears throat> attribute of the universe or property falling within that sweet spot is incredibly small. So in virtue of that, um, the, the, some of the scientists who first discovered these, in particular Sir Fred Hoyle, who was a staunch scientific atheist, uh, after discovering some of these fine-tuning parameters, uh, reversed his worldview and affirmed a kind of basic or quasi, uh, a kind of rudimentary theism and explained and said that he was quoted as saying that the, 
the fine-tuning, the, the best data we have, meaning about the fine-tuning, suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics to make life possible. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's a kind of a, a, a design argument that he ended up making. And, and in response to that, many secular physicists now have proposed something called the multiverse. And that's the idea that, that uh, even though the parameters, getting all the parameters just right looks incredibly improbable, if there are enough other universes out there, it would be inevitable that in one of those universes, or maybe more, the the right combination of parameters would <clears throat> end up arising, and therefore, someplace, not everywhere, but someplace, life must arise inevitably, and we and just happen to be in that lucky universe, and so that's been the, kind of the 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 secular explanation for the fine-tuning. There's a, a billion other universes out there, and <clears throat> eventually in one of them, the right combination of parameters would have had to arise, and we just happen to be in that universe. Um, but that, that explanation is actually problematic for reasons that, that are not often recognized. But, um, and here's the, here's the basic problem. If you have <clears throat> all these other universes, uh, rather, just having all these other universes doesn't solve the problem of the the origin of the fine-tuning or explain the, the improbable fine-tuning because if the other universes are out, if you have other universes out there and they're causally disconnected from our own universe, which is what we mean by a universe, it's a separate, enclosed, causally enclosed system, then just the existence of other universes has no effect on anything that, that happens in our universe because uh, there's no contact between the two. There's no causal connection. And... That also applies to whatever process might have produced the fine-tuning in the first place. Just the existence of other universes doesn't explain why the, why the parameters were set just the way they were because those other universes have no effect on anything going on in this universe. So in virtue of that, the multiverse advocates have posited what are called universe-generating mechanisms, one based on something called inflationary cosmology, another based on something called string theory, both of, both of which are kind of specul speculative cosmological models. But it turns out that when you examine these models carefully, it, that, uh, that for these universe-generating mechanisms to produce other, other universes, even in theory, they themselves require prior exquisite and unexplained fine-tuning. And so you're right back to where you started. You have fine-tuning, you invoke universe-generating mechanisms, but the mechanisms themselves require fine-tuning. And so... Uh, you, you still need to explain the ultimate origin of the fine-tuning of the universe-generating mechanisms. Um, and since we know in our experience that finely-tuned systems, whether we're talking about something like a Swiss watch or a French recipe or an internal combustion engine, all, all systems that we would describe as being finely-tuned, by which we mean a system with multiple independent parameters that work together to accomplish some function where the parameters are extremely improbable, um, all such finely tuned systems arise from intelligent agents. So since the multiverse has not explained the ultimate origin of fine tuning, even if it's true, it also suggests the need for intelligent design. So I think we really haven't gotten around that. The, 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 the common sense interpretation that Fred Hoyle uh, uh, referred to is still the best explanation, and that is that a super intellect monkey with physics to make life possible. Can all right, I we're, gonna take a, we're gonna take a little break. My guest is Dr. Stephen Meyer and also Dr. Brad Sickler and Brian DeVries. It's almost like a, a science fair today. This is great. Um, we're going to take a break and be right back with lots more.
If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have as our very special guest today, Dr. Stephen Meyer, being joined in studio with Dr. Brad Sickler and Brian DeVries. Stephen's book is called Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Um, Stephen, you got your PhD uh, in the origin of life, the origin of life biology. Does that sound right? That was, yeah, that was the topic of the, my thesis. I received the PhD in the philosophy of science. Um, yeah, I did in, pretty in Cambridge. good. Yeah. Okay. I did pretty good in high school biology 101. So I don't know. You, I, you think you're, do you think you're smarter than me? <laughs> I, I'm certainly not funnier than you. We were talking about that beforehand. <laughs> All right. so. I'm just enormously intimidated by how smart you are. Just so you know. But my question is, and then I'll let Brian and uh, and Brad ask more questions because I'm running out of my good questions. Um, if there uh, if there's no designer, how did we get the first living cell? Well, that's how does life, that's, how does a, life that's actually life? a very good question. And okay, the, my first book was called Signature in the Cell: DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. And one of the great discoveries of modern science occurred in the 1950s, first with Watson and Crick elucidating the structure of the DNA molecule, 1953. And then in 1958, Francis Crick, working more on his own, realizing that the chemical subunits that run along the spine of that twisting double helix that we all learn about in high school biology, that those chemical subunits called bases or nucleotide bases are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in a, in a section of machine code or software. Um, if you remember from high school biology, you've got the sugar phosphate backbone, the twisting helix, and then on the inside there are chemical subunits called bases or nucleotide bases. And what Crick realizes is that those chemical subunits are functioning just like letters in a, in a written text. And they are conveying a message within the cell to direct the construction of proteins and protein machines that are necessary to keep the cell alive. So in modern times today, we have these um, uh, <clears throat> um, the, uh, the technology known as CAD-CAM, computer-assisted design and manufacturing, where at, say, the Boeing plant in Seattle, where I live, a, a, an engineer will be sitting at his console, write some code. The code will go down a wire. It will be then translated into another machine code, and that code, code will be used to produce the mechanical systems from the airplane or for example it might put the rivets on the airplane wing in just the right in just the right places and <clears throat> so we're using this uh, th this type of technology all the time in modern manufacturing and uh, digital code directing the construction of mechanical parts and this is what crick and a, a whole group of other molecular biologists came to realize in the late 50s and 1960s is that inside living organisms we have a genetic text we have a genetic code and we have a whole processing system that uses that genetic information to direct the construction of all the crucial protein molecules that's, that keep cells alive. And that raised a huge question, which is not where is the information. We learned that. It was in the DNA molecule. It's not what does the information do. We learned that as well. It produces proteins and protein machines. It, the, the big question that was left unanswered was where did the information come from? And what we know from our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning, 
is that whenever we see information, whether it's in a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a section of software code or the information that we're transmitting over this radio signal, information always arises from an intelligent source. So the discovery of information at the foundation of life is powerful evidence for the activity of a designing intelligence and the origin of life because we know you can't build a living system without the code. You need the you need the information to build the biological form, the biological entity. And just like in our computer world, you can't give your if you want to give your computer a new function, you need new code. Well, the same thing is true in life. If you want to build a cell, the first living organism, or if you want to build new forms of life from pre-existing forms of life, you in each case need new information. And yet we know of no other cause of the origin of information, especially if it's in a digital digital or alphabetic form, than, than a mind. So what I think we're looking at is evidence of the activity of a designing intelligence in the, in the origin of life. All right, I'm going to try to think of another smart question, but Brian DeVries, I bet you have something for uh, Stephen. <laughs> Yeah, I have a I have a question that I was going to ask him. Um, in your in the last part of your book, you're talking about um, the big questions and why they matter. Why is it important to think about things like the origin of the universe, design of living things, and even the existence of God? Why is that important? Well, in some ways, uh, human destiny is connected to our human origins. Uh, are we the product of undirected material processes? And if so, is it then true that when we die, we decompose? When we die, we rot? This is the materialist credo. Uh, when we die, we rot. Uh, we are the product of, of an eternal, self-existent material universe that did not have us in mind. Um, and this has led to a kind of depressing nihilistic worldview that's uh, having a profound effect on, on young people in particular. The great um, University of Texas physicist and Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg, who was one of the most outspoken scientific atheists, was quoted as saying, the more the universe seems comprehensible, meaning to our science, the more it seems pointless. There, there is no meaning or purpose to our existence because there is no personal source of our existence. Meaning is something that is inherently personal. Nothing can mean anything to a rock or to an atom or to, um, to a planet or a galaxy Something things only mean things to persons. So if you want to have meaning in your life, there must be. If you, if for there to be meaning, there must be persons uh, to whom things mean something. Now that's fair enough. Some atheists will say, "Well, we just have we can create our own meaning." But the problem with that is that we we only live on this planet for a short period of time, and when we die. According to the materialist philosophy, we rot and and our, we we see we we cease to to exist, and this has been a really troubling insight for many materialists themselves. Bertrand Russell famously was quoted in 1925, the great Cambridge mathematician and atheist, as saying, "You know, the that we have to recognize that you know, no matter how great our human achievements, that that eventually it, this will we're the, they're all going to go away in the in the heat death of the universe and there's a really a very poignant quote that I can't pull from memory about this but it's I quote it in signature in the cell and I think a lot of young people sense that what's the point of my existence what's I the question I had that haunted me when I was 14 years old was what's it going to matter in 100 years what anything I love baseball and when I started reading about the history of baseball I had this this re- recurring uh, thought you know the, all the great players had the same trajectory. They were scouted. They came into the major leagues. They acquired records. They retired usually by the time they were forty, and they might have enjoyed the celebrity of their athletic past. But at some point, what was the point of it all? 
And then I thought, well, I mean, you could maybe you could be a surgeon. Maybe that would be more important. We could save lives, but eventually those people would die too. And so there's this sense that if there's to be ultimate meaning to human existence, there must be not only a personal source but a personal destiny. There must be a person behind the universe who has the capacity to grant us life beyond the grave. And this is the message of of, of the Bible and of of uh, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, that there is such a personal source for our existence. We are loved and cared for by an omnipotent creator. And there is a possibility of being in an eternal relationship with him and with each other, such that the possibility of personal meaning, which is very real. Apart from that, there is no possibility of ultimate meaning. And the great atheist philosophers, the French existentialists, for example, very much perceived this. Jean-Paul Sartre said, without an infinite and personal reference point, there can be no lasting or enduring meaning. And I think this is, this is the thing that a lot of young people sense. The recent study coming out of Harvard showing that we have epidemic levels of teen anxiety and anxiety among young people – epidemic levels of depression, and 56% of young people under 30 surveyed said that they had doubts that their own lives had any ultimate meaning or significance. Um, so I think, I think the God question is, is very much front and center for a lot of people because if there is a personal and loving creator, as the Judeo-Christian scriptures teach, uh, there is every possibility of ultimate meaning. But if there is not such a person, it's true. When we die, we rot. Dr. Stephen Meyer is our very special guest. His book is Return of the God Hypothesis. And Stephen, when I found out you were going to be on the show, I sold a three-question package to Brad Sickler. So it's time, Brad, for you. <laughs> so he's stuck. He's got, he's got to play ball with us here. Oh, yeah. I mean, he couldn't afford the four-question package, so he's, he, he bought the three-question three package. Well, so I also ahead. thought you were offering to take me to Florida, but no, no. Um, I guess that doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, I love what you were just expounding on because we've got these different natural theology arguments, and maybe you could touch on just the, the overall structure and kind of methodology of those. But part of what we do, in addition to like the cosmological argument or the design argument, whether it's rooted in biology or fine-tuning, is, is sort of defending the rationality or encouraging people about the rationality of Christian belief. But this this other issue about meaning and value um, that really reaches to the heart of people, and I, and I, it's you can't have you can't generate meaning and moral obligation and moral structure from moving protons, neutrons, and electrons around. Right. right. So, uh, how how would you sort of give an overview of the general approach of natural theology arguments? What they're trying to do, what they're not trying to do, sort of some common but maybe misguided complaints against them as a class. If uh, how would you overview that? Right, and there are. There are natural theological arguments that are based on scientific discoveries, and my book marshals those arguments in a contemporary form. I use a mode of reasoning that is uh, used in common by both scientists and philosophers and by people in ordinary life, detectives and others. It's called inference to the best explanation. So it looks at a data set, and then it says, okay, here's some things we've discovered about the world. Cells contain digital code, for example— well, what are the possible explanations of that? And then you look at the possible explanations. So you've got, you've got something to be explained, and then you look at the possible explanations. And then you evaluate which of those explanations is best 
based on what we know about the cause and effect structure of the world. If you posit something as producing something else, well, uh, that explanation is is credible insofar as we know that 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 something that you're positing as the explanatory entity has the capability of producing the effect in question. So one of Darwin's key mentors was a man named Charles Lyell, a great geologist, and he he talked about the the idea of uh, causes now in operation. We want to explain an event in the remote past. We want to posit a cause currently in operation that can produce the effect in question. When I came across this principle in my reading and my research, I asked myself a question, well, what is the cause now in operation that produces digital code? And soon after I posed that question, I came across the uh, the work of, a, of an early uh, pioneer in the application of the information sciences to biology, and he made an offhand observation. His name was Henry Quassler. He said that the creation of new information is habitually associated with conscious activity. I asked myself a question, is that true? And I, couldn't, I actually couldn't think of a, a, a counterexample to that. Hieroglyphic inscriptions, paragraphs in books, digital code, the things I just mentioned, all of these things come from conscious activity. And so the cause now in operation for the production of digital information is a mind. And therefore, when we find digital information in life, the foundation of, of living systems, we can infer the activity of a mind as the best explanation for the, the evidence that we've discovered. And so I use this basic structure, this base, basic form of reasoning called inference to the best explanation uh, to make biological design arguments and uh, the design argument based on fine-tuning. And then I have other considerations that come to play uh, in developing a cosmological argument. Uh, Bill Craig, whose work I very much admire, develops the cosmological argument in a deductive form. Whatever begins to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. Since causes are separate from their effects, that cause must uh, transcend the physical universe. It must have some other attributes, and and the argument is developed that way. The way I like to develop the the cosmological argument is complementary to that. I say, well, if the universe had a beginning, which of the major worldviews could best explain that? Well, materialism doesn't explain that because before the beginning of the material universe itself, before the beginning of matter, space, time, and energy, there was no matter to do the causing. So there's no no, uh, possibility of a plausible materialistic explanation for the origin of matter itself. Uh, pantheism as a worldview doesn't do a very good job of explaining that because the pantheistic creator is seen to be coextensive with the material universe. If the material universe had a beginning, then so did the pantheistic creator. So there is no, there is nothing in pantheism, no entity affirmed by pantheism that transcends or is separate from the physical universe. So it can't provide a causal explanation. Uh, instead, you need a, a creator who is tra- who is separate or transcendent from the creator. And that, that means that either theism or deism provides a better explanation for that key fact that has been uh, uncovered by modern cosmology, namely that the universe, as best we can tell, had a beginning. So I use this method of inference to the best explanation to advance both a version of the cosmological argument and, and two versions of the design argument, one based on fine-tuning and one based on the, the digital information and complexity of the cell that we've, we've discovered. And I think um, one advantage of framing arguments this way is that they are necessarily provisional. They're based on scientific evidence that we have. Um, they don't bear an un- unrealistic burden of proof. We're not trying to prove with absolute certainty that God exists, but nor are we falling into the trap of fideism, saying, well, we just believe because it feels good or we believe we have faith in faith alone. So there's, I think, a middle way in apologetics where you 
provide the you you provide evidence and reasons in support of belief in God as a best explanation, but don't try to bear the unreasonable uh, burden of proof of giving absolute certainty. All right, we'll take a little break and be right back with Dr. Stephen Meyer. His book is Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries that Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. We're also joined with Dr. Brad Sickler and Brian DeVries. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Stephen Meyer as our very special guest today. Also joined by Dr. Brad Sickler, who's the department head of uh, biblical and theological studies and professor of philosophy here at the University of Northwestern and Brian DeVries, who's an area director for Search Ministries Minnesota. Let me ask you, Stephen, about Darwin's theory of evolution. Is, Is it based on laboratory science? Well, it's based on observations from natural history and some uh, laboratory um, experiments as well. Um, the you, you may be asking me to explain why I'm skeptical of it. Uh, the th- that's, th- that's okay. Th- yeah, implied. Yeah, okay. So um, the, the idea of evolution has multiple meanings. It can mean simply change over time, uh, small-scale variation that's observable, such as uh, Darwin's finches uh, getting bigger and smaller, beak sizes in response to varying weather patterns. Uh, nobody doubts that level, that, that small scale, sometimes called microevolution. But the term evolution can also mean the idea that all organisms are descended from a single uh, common ancestor. That's the idea of universal common descent. That's a second meaning of evolution about which I happen to be skeptical. Third meaning of evolution is even more contentious, and that's the idea that an unguided, undirected process, natural selection acting on random mutations, is responsible for the appearance of design and the complexity that we observe in uh, in living organisms. And that's the that's the aspect of Darwinian evolution that proponents of intelligent design uh, agree needs to be challenged. So that's where we, we don't accept the idea of, of uh, uh, mere appear, the appearance of design, as the Darwinists affirm it, but rather we are say there's evidence of real design. And there, uh, I, I wrote a book called Darwin's Doubt, uh, the Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. And there I showed that not only do uh, does Darwinian evolution have a problem explaining the patterns we see in the fossil record where the major innovations in the history of life, the, big, the abrupt um, uh, appearance of new form, biological form with, the, for example, the, uh, an event called the Cambrian Explosion and many other such events where you have big bursts of new biological form entering the fossil record with no evidence in the lower strata of ancestral intermediate forms that would connect these new forms to to even yet earlier simpler forms as you'd expect to see in a Darwinian view. Um, That's a big problem. This is uh, one of the problems I addressed is the, I called it the problem of the missing fossils. But an even deeper problem is the problem of how the Darwinian mechanism would build all these new forms of life. Because as I mentioned before, uh, just as we, in our computer world, you need you need uh, new information 
to build uh, – if you want to give your computer a new function, you have to have new information. If you want to build a new form of life, you've got to have new information. And yet the Darwinian mechanism affirms that random changes in the, in the genetic text called mutations are the source of that new information. But we know from our computer world – that if you start randomly changing zeros and ones in a section of computer code, you're going to degrade that code and cause the computer to lose function long before you're going to generate a new program or operating system. And so as people have begun to think about uh, computer scientists, physicists, uh, mathematically inclined scientists have begun to think about the odds of generating uh, a new section of genetic text called a, a gene capable of doing uh, building a new protein or a new biological structure – by random mutation, they've realized that the Darwinian mechanism is actually mathematically extremely implausible. And I go through the math of that in my book, but it's if you can just think about what happens when you mutate or change computer code randomly, you don't build something new, you degrade what you have. And that same problem applies to, the, to Darwinian evolution. In other words, the Darwinian model does not account for the origin of the new information you need to build new biological structures. Mm-hmm. Stephen, Brian brought, uh, bought the uh, two-question package. So, uh, Brian, you're going to be a lot. <laughs> let's get him back in here, yeah. <laughs> yeah I was going to get, it. I was gonna get, get the uh, position on record for okay. the old Earth, young Earth discussion. Where do you sit and how do you get there? Well, right. Uh, as, the, as a representative of a network of scientists who are advancing the theory of intelligent design, I am officially age-neutral. Uh, the theory of intelligent design is not addressing the question of how long the days of Genesis were, which is, I know, a contentious issue within the, the Christian uh, religious community. Um, I have a view on that myself, um, but uh, the important thing is that intelligent design is asking, uh, ad addressing a different question. Is the appearance of design in living organisms that nearly all biologists recognize real or illusory? Again, that Dawkins quote, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. The Darwinian view is that the appearance of design is an illusion because there's an unguided, undirected process called natural selection acting on random mutations that can produce that appearance. We dispute that. We think that the mutation selection mechanism, natural selection mechanism, has very limited creative power, and it certainly does not have the power to generate the new information necessary to build fundamentally new forms of life such as the, the, the new animals that appear abruptly in events like the Cambrian explosion. Um, having said that, my, my own view, uh, so we have tried to build a kind of a big tent among the Christians in our movement and say, look, you know, the age question is secondary. Let's not fight over that. While we've been fighting over that, uh, we've given these Darwin, Darwinian rascals a free pass on, a, on what is essentially a very weak argument that they have. So this key question of design has gone sort of has been obscured by all this internecine fighting over how to interpret words like yom in the bible and um and so now my own view on it is that um i i have the view that the earth is very old the universe is very old and that uh but anatomically modern man our species is fairly recent um and i um and i could go into the empirical reasons for that but I, I think also biblically, I'm not convinced that the Bible teaches a young earth, which many, many of my, call, you know, some, many, many Christians think. And my reason for that is, is the, the it, it, I have several reasons for that, but one of the outstanding biblical reasons for that is the account in the, of the creation of, in the, the day four account of creation in Genesis 1. Uh, there, the Bible teaches that the, um, 
that God either created from nothing or caused to appear, depending on how you render a Hebrew word, hayah, the the sun and the moon and and the stars, and he gave them as markers of the days, the years, and the seasons. Well, we mark time today as the result by watching the sun move across the ecliptic. So the sun is a time marker for us. The moon is a time marker. It marks months. And so it's very hard to say that the days of creation, which have already been established, we've already had three days of creation, the yoms of creation have already been established, but they were established before there are time markers. So it's hard to know how long those days of creation were before we had a way of marking them or denominating them in the way we mark time today. So I think we have to be very careful to avoid imputing our notions of time to the to the biblical text. And so I think those days of creation are probably of indeterminate length, and therefore I feel comfortable looking to the science to define the questions about the, uh, the, uh, the chronology of, of, of the universe. All right, we'll take a little break. Dr. Stephen Meyer is our special guest today. His book, Return of the God Hypothesis, and also joined in studio by Dr. Brad Sickler and Brian DeVries. We'll take a short break and be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Stephen Meyer, also joined by Brad Sickler and Brian DeVries. Because, Brad, there's no refunds and you bought the three-question packet, <laughs> I want to clear some space for you so I don't want you mad at me. <laughs> well, in thinking about uh, these issues, um, you know, some of the defensive stuff that we're doing to try to defend the rationality of of theistic belief uh, in general or Christian belief in particular, um, getting back to this uh, pushing back and trying to show some of the irrationality of materialism or, or, you know, just straight naturalism. Darwin himself had an observation, and I'd like you to comment on it, and he says this, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which had been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? It's the other doubt that Darwin had about his own... His horrid doubt. His horrid yeah. doubt. He had a doubt about the adequacy of his theory to explain the Cambrian fossils. And I wrote a whole book about this called Darwin's Doubt. But there's a second doubt that he expressed, and it's the one that you just shared. And that is that his doubt about the reliability of the human mind, if his theory were true. If we arose by uh, by strictly mindless, undirected material processes, then not only our bodies, but our mental capabilities are also the product of those irrational processes. And that raises a question on what basis do we trust the reliability of our minds. In Darwinism, everything is is optimized for survival. But there are many beliefs that we have, scientific beliefs, that have really nothing to do with our ability to survive. Everything we know about the cosmos, everything we know about, supposedly know about evolutionary theory has very little bearing on our survival. So there's this, this potentially self-contradictory aspect to Darwinian materialism. If, if you think of the mind as the product of undirected material processes, of mindless processes, on what basis would would you um, would you ex- uh, accept its deliverances? 
On the other hand, if you start with a theistic premise, or if you have good reasons to think that theism is true, uh, then there is a good reason to trust the reliability of the mind. And this was actually a really important premise of the scientific revolution. The early scientists during the period of the scientific revolution from 1500 to 1700, say, um, believed that uh, they, had a, they had a key principle, a guiding principle, and that was – they called it the, – the, they believed in the intelligibility of the universe, that it could be understood by the human mind. Why? Because they believed that our minds had been made in the image of a rational creator who had built into the universe – principles of rationality and order and, and design. So the universe had been designed in an orderly way that we could understand because our minds had been made in the image of the creator who had made, it, who had made the universe in a, in, a, in a rational and orderly way. And so there was a principle of correspondence between what the Cambridge physicist John Polkinghorne used to call the reason within, within our own minds, and the reason built into, cre into the creation, the reason without. Um, and so the, the, this worry about the reliability of the mind doesn't really arise in theism because if our minds are the product of a benevolent creator who wants us to know the creation that he made, then we have reason to trust that our, uh, our cognitive equipment is, uh, is generally reliable in knowing the world around us. But if instead our minds are only are, are the product of undirected mindless processes, we don't really have any reason to trust them. Uh, John Lennox has a story he tells about talking to people at high table in, in one of the Oxford colleges. And he says, well, if, if you learned that the, the computer programs you, you are using were the, the product of random processes with no programmer behind them, would you trust their, their outputs? And uh, he, the, his interlocutors say, well, no, of course not. He said, well, then why would you trust the reliability of the mind if it were the, process, if it were the product of, un, of, uh, of mindless processes? random mutations and the like. And uh, at least in the way that John tells the story, it was a stumper of a question. I think it's a very good question. So in, in thinking about uh, – Bill, sorry, Bill, can I give you oh, an IOU ahead, for Bill. a fourth question? You're going to uh, owe me, but go ahead. <laughs> He'll send the money later. Yeah, I'll owe you. So in Scripture, in, for example, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, we hear about God upholding all things by the power of his word, and it's by Christ and through and for Christ that all things are held together, are held together right. and that they were created. So how do you see um, a proper understanding of divine causation and God's ongoing activity in sustaining the universe, not just having created in the past? How do you see that informing some yeah, of that, your perspective? That's a great, great thing. I was, I was just going to quickly mention that I addressed this, what's called the epistemological argument from or, or the argument from epistemological necessity in the very last chapter of Return of the God Hypothesis. So most of the book is about evidential arguments, design arguments, cosmological arguments in their defense. But in the end, I talk quite a bit about my own reflection on this um, need for a creator as the grounding of the of our belief in the reliability of the mind. But also I discuss Alvin Plantinga's amazing work in his three-volume set, Warrant and Proper Function, where Plantinga develops this argument against uh, – he, he shows that the conjunction of evolutionary theory with the worldview of naturalism uh, ends up producing a perspective that, that – it ends up um, – generating a, a self-defeating view of, of the reliability of the mind. Um, yeah, that's where the conflict really yeah, lies. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's where a conflict lies. Yeah. I think there are more conflicts than that. But um, your question, sorry, was... Uh, well, it's just about, you know, God's sustaining work oh, right, and how right. that yes, fits exactly. into your picture. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, there, there was a great medieval uh, distinction between the potentia ordinata, the ordinary power of God, in upholding 
the regular concourse of nature, which we describe with our concept of the laws of nature, and also the 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 potentia absoluta or the fiat power of God's God's ability to act as an agent discreetly within the orderly concourse of nature that he otherwise sustains and upholds. So the medieval theologians affirm two powers of God, that he he is responsible for the orderly concourse of nature that we observe and describe as uh, the lawful order we describe with our notion of the laws of nature. But he can also act discreetly in individual cases uh, in what we would term as as miracles, that there are instances of uh, singular actions of the divine person that are also part of how he interacts with nature, so that there's there's really two powers. I personally don't think, for many philosophical reasons, that that what we call miracles violate the laws of nature. Rather, I think that, that they are instances of God acting as an agent within an orderly system that that he's responsible for. If I'm about to shoot two, uh, to shoot uh, a pool, uh, knock two billiard balls together on a pool table, and I'm in a position to predict exactly where one ball will go if I hit it with another ball, in with a, a very in a very precise way, but then somebody shakes the table, I will no longer be able to predict where the ball is going to go. But it doesn't mean that the law of momentum exchange was violated. It means that an agent interfered with that orderly system to cause a different outcome. And I think of a miracle in the same way as God's agent causation or his agent action, um, as the Bible says with the Exodus account, and the Lord caused an east wind to blow. He can act within the natural order without violating the laws of nature. Stephen, thank you so much for doing the show today. I know you've had a long day, and I so appreciate you being willing to come on and spend a whole hour with us. And uh, Brad Sickler, thank you. And Brian DeVries, thank you as well. You bet. Yeah, thank you, and for all these awesome questions. Oh, thank you so much. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Michael Wise is going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.